never want to be trapped in a foreign country with a friend who's saying racist things to the hotel owners and getting you $60,000 into debt. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, welcome to a special episode of Pennies and Popcorn. We have an exciting guest with us today, and that is Amberly Grant. Amberly, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Say who you are and what you do? Yeah. Hi, all. I'm Amberly Grant. I run an Instagram account, uh, Amberly Grant, and a Facebook page called Amberly Grant Finance. I uh, am focused on financial education and literacy for just normal individuals in the FIRE community as well. I have created a Tuesday Fin Talks where I have 40 to 50 people who meet up every single Tuesday to talk about different financial topics that I get to choose. Um, so normally they kind of follow whatever trajectory of my life we're on, maybe buying a house, mental health, whatever it might be. And um, yeah, we do mentorship programs and one-on-one coaching as well with Amberly Grant Finance. That is such a cool program that you've put together. So um, you have been featured on our sister slash brother podcast, the Mile High Fi uh, podcast with Doug and Carl. And I was actually listening back to your episode with them today, just kind of refreshing my memory. And you are just, you're such an impressive human being. You always have so many irons in the fire. And one thing that stood out to me as I was listening back to your interview with Doug and Carl was you mentioned you read your first finance book when you were 15 years old. Mm -hmm. That is pretty incredible. Do you remember which book it was? Yep. It's The Wealthy Barber. Okay, cool. I don't think I have read that one. I feel like I've read a lot of personal finance books, but that one has eluded me. It really is something for young people because it talks a lot about compound interest and what does $20 today get you in your future if you were to save it? Oh, that sounds really, really helpful. Yeah. So you also mentioned on Doug and Carl's podcast that you used to be super into Susie Orman. Yeah. Robert and I were major fans of the Susie Orman show, like way back in the day. Yeah, I was so obsessed with her Can You Afford It segment. Like we would get so invested in these decisions of whether people could afford some crazy thing. Do you remember this by any chance? No, I don't. (laughs) Well, you should go back and watch um, the Can You Afford It segment of the old Susie Orman shows because they're pretty good stuff. So the show we're going to be talking about today is pretty hot right now. Just came out on Netflix um, like two weeks ago, super recently. Um, And it is Inventing Anna, which as the show tells you, is a completely true story, except for all the parts that are totally made up. Um, But actually, when you read all the stuff on the internet about the real Anna Delvey slash Anna Sorokin that it's based on, it really feels like they put a ton of true stuff into the show. Like so much of what we see on television seems to have actually happened. Yeah, wasn't the writer of an, a real news story about this person one of the writers on the show? Well, there you go. There's our first fun fact. Yeah, fun fact. The show. I did not catch that in only reading about the show. So let's just start with like general impressions. Did you like it? What did you think? I loved it. Uh, not only the acting and portrayal of Anna Delvey, um, the storylines and how each episode would kind of focus on a different person and the ins and outs of what happened to them. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought was really fascinating. And I definitely binge watched that in probably three or four days. Yeah, us too. What do you think, Robert? I thought it was good. I mean, I don't love the high fashion type shows, right? We, we talked about Sex in the City not too long ago. And I haven't really watched very many of those, but I did enjoy Inventing Anna. I thought, you know, a couple of famous people, right? The Julia Garner, is that her name? Uh-huh. Uh, the, the girl from Ozark. Great job. Uh, the Anna Klumsky, the girl from My Girl. Okay. <laughs> yes. I was wondering. Yeah. I, th- I couldn't remember if she was Harriet the Spy or someone else. And then my roommate told me it was yeah. My Girl. And yeah. I guess she was on Veep as well, right? She did a great job on Veep. I should note, according to what I have read on the internet, poor Anna Klumsky would really like it if we could stop associating her with My Girl because 
that was like 30 plus years in her past and she wants to move on. She's done good work since then. But if you do good work that's that memorable, you know, embrace yeah. it. She and Macaulay Culkin really hit one out of the park at like age nine or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like we're going to have to die off for us to forget that. I'm sorry. Yeah. I will say I was actually a bigger fan of Gold Digger, The Secret of Bear Mountain, which was also one of Anna Klemsky's early works. I'll take your word for it. Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> so uh, moving on from our flashback to the 90s, let's talk about the more recent work of Inventing Anna. You want to give just a little bit more of a plot summary for everyone? I'm not sure that all of our audience is familiar with the program. Yeah. So very briefly, the show is a story of a woman named Anna Delvey slash Anna Sorokin. I say that because she uses Anna Delvey as an alias. Her real name is actually Anna Sorokin. And she came to the United States from Germany and passed herself off as a German heiress, someone who was just on the cusp of inheriting a trust worth somewhere in the range of $60 million and conned a whole heck of a lot of people into believing that that is who she really was, including some banks who gave her pretty hefty uh, lines of credit as a result of this. So she committed a lot of actual crimes in the process, um, not just told a lot of lies, but told some criminal lies. So the story is just kind of the unfolding of Anna Sorokin and all of the crazy misadventures that she went on and all of the ways that she wronged people around her and ultimately her landing in jail and the story of her trial unfolding as well. Well, in the series, it starts off one of the earliest things is Anna introducing herself. And that's actually our first clip. You know me. Everyone knows me. I'm an icon. A legend. The fake heiress allegedly scammed her way through thousands of dollars in gourmet meals, luxury hotel rooms, and private jet flights. Sources say she also conned Manhattan's glitterati, leaving egg on the faces of society's biggest players from the art world, real estate, fashion, and Wall Street. That pot's all lies, you know. I did nothing wrong. I work for my success. I earn my accomplishments. Pay attention. Maybe you'll learn how to be smart like me. This show has so many great money lessons that I think we can learn. And starting with this clip of Anna introducing herself, we learn a little bit about the background of her conning people, and you just get a sense of who Anna Sorokin is from this clip and what she finds uh, interesting and engaging in life. So the question that I have listening to this clip is that clearly... Anna Sorokin is obsessed with this world of wealth and glitz and glamour. And my question is, why? Maybe that sounds like a silly question because so many people feel the same way. We all just kind of intuitively are drawn to that. But Amberly, why do you think that is that we're so drawn to this world of fancy clothes and restaurants and et cetera. One of the things that I think we define success by in our Western world, and I'll, I'll leave out some of the East in this, although it's very much present there, but in our world is this idea that you've made it when you can have whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. And I think that's something to think about is does that grandiose and the ability to have whatever you want whatever you want actually like should be the definition of success in this country? And the answer is obviously no. Um, there is so much more to strive for than physical goods or um, really unique experiences, although life can be nice with um, some ease. And so this obsession with uh, this grandioseness um, is a little bit of like, peeper syndrome, like where you're kind of peeping into a life that you can never really have. I've heard of the um, the idea that Americans believe that they are temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Um, and so it might be one of the reasons why we think we can achieve this, or it's something very exciting to continue to look at, look for, and maybe strive for. So how do we do better than that, right? If, if it's like, it's not just our generation, right? You go back 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 
surely people felt the same way, right? How, how do we do better? We <laughs> have to decide what success means to each of us. And for some people, that will always be the case. Having these things and these experiences will be the, like, be the definition of success for them. And whether they achieve it and find happiness in other things in life, then that's good on them. Um, but for us, like for me as an individual, that's not how I define success. I will say that some things are nicer to have. Like I just put a post on Instagram about these. Um, we, we literally just had a, a FinTalk session on what are luxuries that you should pay for. And there are things in life that you should spend a little bit more money on for convenience. So if you don't have time to make your own meals, then you can order food, you know, like HelloFresh or something like that. Um, I have a pair of... Um, Tiffany and Company sunglasses, and they are fantastic with their customer service. I got a scratch on the lens. I sent them in. They couldn't get them to me back in like in time for me to stay. I was in, I was living in Tucson. I couldn't get them back uh, in time uh, while I was living in Tucson because I was moving to Australia. So they told me go to the Australian store, pick out a new pair, and it's yours. Wow, so like, that is amazing. Uh, though that would not happen with a $25 drugstore pair of glasses, right? But yeah. this, this $250 pair of glasses that I had, like it came with so much more that actually was convenient to me because when the glasses were no longer available to me, they made it happen. So some of these luxuries, I don't think are things that we should be pointing our fingers at and saying, like, why are you obsessed with that? There's actually some really great reasons to maybe purchase things um, if you can afford them that are higher quality or come from better companies. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That is something I struggle with to not be judgmental of people for kind of the opposite reason that I think Anna Sorkin is judgmental of people. Um, she seems to judge folks for not having expensive things. I tend to err on the side of judging people for having expensive things, but that's neither is better than the other, right? They're both bad traits to have, comparing yourself to other people, judging other people for choices that they've made. There are often really good reasons that people are making the choices that they are. So I think that's something important that we should all recognize and something that I personally should work on. My answer to your question of how we can do better, Robert, I think is by finding something besides worrying about what people think of us that we are really passionate and excited about in life. Like if you are, you know, really excited about writing your own book or building your own fintechs business or working at your engineering job that you're super passionate about, anything that you have in life that really gets you going and excited that's not a physical thing is, I think, the true path to happiness. So yeah, if, if you are finding yourself getting too pulled into the world of kind of obsession with high fashion and glamour and feeling better than others by having more money to spend than they do, my advice would be to find an activity that you love to do that really lights you up and gets you excited about life. I think we just need to change the models we're looking at. What we kind of take our cues from for what's normal, we need uh, less curated Instagram pages it's from celebrities in particular. Right? We need to see more of what it's really like in the day-to-day -day world and not assume that people who are successful have this extremely grandiose existence at all times. It's not always glitzy, and I think people forget that. I have a saying that most of life is vanilla, and then you have like spots of color, right? So knowing that that's the case, every day you're going to wake up and have to eat, drink some water, do your business, like that's life. Yeah. And everything else on top of that is just like sprinkles on the cake. So if you feel comfortable talking about it, can you tell us about a client that you were working with who had a very extreme spending habit and was maybe kind of in this vein of Anna Sorg? Yeah. And so I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. And um, for anonymity's sake, we, of course, will not say her profession or what she does or who she is. Um, so I have a client who, absolutely wonderful human, one of the like nicest, not Anna Delvey type gals. Um, and she lives way above her means. And maybe some months she can cut it, some months she can't. And that's the scary thing about 
um, when you live above your means is that you're just one issue, paycheck, job loss, pandemic away from no longer affording it, from losing it all and digging yourself into a hole that's going to take a long time to get out of. And so with this client, when it comes to people who go above and beyond what they can actually afford, the first thing I wonder is mental health. So that is the first thing I wonder, what is it that you're chasing that you're or you're running away from that um, we need to address? Not necessarily me. I am not a therapist, although that's what I find a lot of counseling or, you know, consulting sessions are is half counseling, half actual financial knowledge. <laughs> um, so let's talk about that. Where does that come from? And where is that insecurity that you have to have this lifestyle? And then secondly, um, like changing a lifestyle like that, you have friends around that lifestyle. That is really difficult. You have habits around this lifestyle. That's very difficult to change. And so when you start living above your means or, you know, lifestyle inflation or lifestyle creep, when you have that, you don't really see it happening until it's too late, until that event happens. And so with this client is living way above her means. um, And again, sometimes maybe can afford it. And there really is an underlying question of why. And that's what I bring back to her. It's every time you're going to make a purchase, why? And then don't ask that once. It's the five whys, right? Why am I doing this? Mm, I want it. Okay, cool. Not good enough. Why? 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 Because I don't feel good enough. Or because I never got this as a child. Or because my friends are doing it, so I don't know how to say no. And to me, that gives a lot more clarity and understanding of like, why do people go to this extravagance when they can't afford it? And and as a perfect example of someone who can't afford it, but believes she deserves it. Yeah, that describes her to a T. I think you're exactly right to be focusing on mental health because, yeah, there's something deep down that's driving people to strive for these kinds of things. I don't think it's just oh, that looks, you know, that dress looks pretty and it'll look good on me. I want it. Because you could find that like for way, way less money at much cheaper stores, like at a thrift store even, right? But it's that experience of being in like the fancy store and having people who are like attending to you and telling you, oh, you look so beautiful in that. So yeah, I think it's a very emotional, mental attraction that we have to that much more so than the actual physical item itself. Our next clip is a good segue from this because it's specifically about how women dress and present themselves in that allure of fashion. I have a question. I looked at some stuff about you from the internet and I see some pictures (laughs) and I wonder, what do you wear? Huh? Why do you dress like that? Like that. What are you wearing? You look poor. <laughs> this is a nice... I'm, I'm pregnant and maternity clothes are hard to... Dress down for prison. No, you need to get better clothes. You could get Carolina, Herrera, Dior, Valentino... Maybe. And Chanel makes perfect flats. Your feet are too fat for heels. But this, no, you look broke ass. Oh, man. So many thoughts in response to this clip. So just to set the scene a little bit, that's Anna Sorokin with the crazy accent that you hear. And then that's Anna Klumski playing the reporter who's talking to her in prison. Um, who's being attacked for wearing (laughs) what I should say are like perfectly nice clothes in the show. Like, Uh yeah, this is, she is not showing up in like a holy band t-shirt from the eighties or something. Like she looks very presentable and professional. Really, it comes down to as a woman, you're always judged for what you're wearing. It's never good enough, like covered up enough, revealing enough. And I have to think about that in my videos, like every time I'm on camera oh, wow. for Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, I have to be careful with like how much cleavage I'm showing because I will get comments and like direct mm-hmm. messages from people commenting on what I'm wearing, not the substance of my videos. And I don't know a lot of men who get that. 
I'll show yeah. them to my partner and be like, oh, look what this guy just wrote me, which is completely inappropriate. And I don't know why. And it's because of like, I just maybe should have pulled my shirt up a little bit more. We'll have to ask Doug and Carl. Because, uh, you know, it sounds like Carl on most of their shows is wearing something paint stained or, you know. A dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Something unusual. <laughs> I wonder if they get comments on their, on their videos. Yeah. yeah, I would bet. I would bet our entire net worth that they don't. Yeah, I would. And that's something about like being a woman, putting yourself out there online or just in the public sphere. And friends are not any better. Like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I I have a hard time. Oh, a great one. I went on a sister trip. Sorry, sisters. You don't listen to this anyways. Um, I went on a sister trip and my sisters are the most judgmental of me, but maybe that's just family, right? And I used to have a pixie haircut and they always told me I was a boy. Like I look like a boy. Um, so I had to grow it out. I didn't ha- like, that's what they wanted me to do. And I did it eight years later. Um, and I went on a sister trip and I wore these like Vans shoes that I had. One of them had a hole in it. My sister literally looked at me and was like, you're going to go out in that? And I was like, yes. The answer is yes. First of all, didn't bring another pair of shoes because I don't care. Secondly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I find that such a like interesting thing we do is like always commenting and yeah when girls are getting ready like I'm not going to change five times I don't care yeah I this seems like a tangent from finances but I don't think it is because the way that we dress can be such a huge part of our budget right we talked about this in one of our episodes like the average American clothing budget is like a couple thousand dollars a year somewhere in that neighborhood it's a lot of money that people spend on clothes and I think it also goes back to your definition of ex- of success is very tied to how you present yourself and getting to that place where you just flat don't care what other people think is not only relevant to what you wear, but also how you're spending your money generally. Like you're no longer giving a crap about what kind of car you drive and what other people think about it or having to like live in the perfect posh neighborhood or... I mean, the list goes on and on, like carrying a certain handbag, which I'm sure is something else that Anna Sorkin would care deeply about, which I usually carry like an Osprey like sling bag, which is not exactly high fashion. So yeah, I think getting to that point where you know what you like, you know what's comfortable, you know what feels good for you, that is relevant both for fashion and for your finances, just spending on the things that make you happy, like a pair of Tiffany sunglasses. If you just love them and they make you feel good and they've got great customer service, that's awesome. Like go splurge on those, but doing it because you really want it and not because you think this is what the world needs to see. So I'm going to try to live up to that expectation. So when I, when I heard this clip from the show or, you know, we watched it, what I, what, what ran through my head is, does it really cost that much to look good to, 99% of the population? It depends. Uh, like the one thing I was going to say to that would be um, there's such thing as a capsule wardrobe as well, right? So when we're talking finances and clothing, you don't have to spend a lot of money to get good quality and like number of items that can work together. So the idea, like a lot of people will buy the same type of shirt seven different times and then another shirt and another one, and it's all the same. And now they have 50 shirts in their wardrobe. Instead, you get like like two, and then you get another style and just a couple. And so then you can choose and mix and match. And that's a really great way if you're on a budget to be able to put together really great wardrobes, um, look presentable into the public however you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and do it on a budget. So that's something to think about that it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Yeah, I, I feel like it shouldn't have to, to to look good to the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. There are the Anna Delvies out there, but who cares what they think? Right. Yeah, there's and enough other people to impress. Exactly. And then maybe you can become friends with them and get their hand-me-downs. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I like it. So she obviously has this like really deep interest in fashion. She seems to be pretty good at it. She also seems to have really great people skills. I mean, this is someone who waltzed into New York City and somehow just completely dazzled like the elite of the elite in the city. So clearly she's got some good interpersonal skills. What what do you think Anna should have done with her life instead of stealing her way in, into this lifestyle? 
She is a confident lady, and that goes so far when you're talking to people. Um, So I don't know what type of career she might have wanted to go into. Uh, Clearly, she loves foundations, so maybe some nonprofit work, if she actually had $60 million behind her, would be fantastic for her to really sway donors to... Um, you know, fund some sort of nonprofit because she was doing that with her foundation. So maybe going outside of herself and getting some sort of actual W-2 job and then using that incredible charisma and confidence to fund those uh, people's programs before, you know, she maybe does something on her own afterwards. Um, That a lot can be said with like those qualities that she has, her ability to speak her truth, whether it's real or not. Um, and that confidence, it just, it will take you so far in life. And most people don't have those skills to succeed without some sort of formal education, um, maybe parents. So truthfully, the world was like at her fingertips and it obviously was. Yeah. I mean, she got so far with nothing, right? No education, no actual money to her name. And she still managed to do a heck of a lot. She's a lead at relationship building with people who value the things that she did. Right? She could really get herself in the middle of the high society crowd. I think you're right. Getting involved with a nonprofit, maybe getting involved with some sort of high fashion sales or something like that. I, th- I think there's a pathway for her to be successful in a traditional role to get enough seed money for her to go do Uh, make more of her own contribution to get started in the same kind of business that she wanted to do with the Anna Delvey Foundation on a smaller scale. I think she would have made um, like a fantastic stylist to the stars kind of thing. She would have been great at that. She would have made like a really great Instagram influencer. I mean, she probably could have been monetizing that. I think she just needed to swallow her pride and not have this, you know, need to already be where she wanted to get. So that hard work stuff works. Well, in this show, she had some spots where she needed to swallow her pride. Uh, If we zoom ahead a little bit in her story, she goes to Morocco and brings some friends along and uh, runs into a little bit of trouble in a hotel in Marrakesh. Can I help you? You can help yourself. We need a functioning credit card. I sent you a wire. You can't just come in here. We have received no wire. And if we do not have a payment or functioning credit card on file... Excuse me, what on vacation? Anna, can't you just give them something? Well, I'll give them a credit card as soon as my bank clears it. Mademoiselle, if you do not give us something immediately, we'll be forced to escort you and your friends off the premises. Anna, please just give them something. You must have something. I don't have anything. My bank won't do business with a dirty country. Okay, escort them out. No, 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 please. What if, what if I put a card down just um, temporarily until her bank sorts things out? You could, you could use it as a hold. That would be acceptable. But it's just a hold. Just have on file, right? As long as we have another card before checkout. No, no, I'm, I'm sure my bank will sort it out by tonight. So, a few things to talk about here. Um, so, the American woman you hear in the clip is her friend Rachel. And she is offering her credit card to put this quote-unquote hold because Anna cannot pay as she has promised them that she would do. And Rachel makes like a pretty modest salary and she flat cannot afford this. So if you are Rachel in this situation, what should you do? I think if you are going to take a trip like that, you just have to be prepared for the contingencies. I I think she probably did the right thing to put her card down. What else is she going to do? She believes that her super rich friend who's treated her to so many things, who bought her plane ticket to get over there, she's got to believe that she's going to come through. Like, What's the alternative here? I totally disagree. Go for it. Yeah, I feel like she should have. So the major wrinkle that is not clear from that clip is that it is not actually her credit card that she's putting down, right? It is her company credit card. And she absolutely does not have authorization to be using her company credit card for her own private, super expensive vacation. I would have said, okay, escort me out. Like, okay, it's time to go. We, you know, we got ourselves into a bad situation. 
I don't have a way of paying for it. I'm not going to pretend that I do. But I think it's this deep need to avoid the feeling of embarrassment that's causing her to take this crazy turn. Do you think it's just embarrassment? I thought there was threats of calling the police. I mean, you're in a foreign country where you may not really know what the rules are. I mean, it'd be a good idea to know kind of what the legal system looks like when you're going somewhere. But I, I think that was part of the problem too. It wasn't just the fear of, you know, having to go sleep in the airport and look like you're homeless. I think it was, you owe them thousands of dollars for staying in their fancy villa and they are going to punish you until you can find a way to make it right. I suppose that is a, a possibility, but all they have threatened at this point is to escort them off the premises, which like if I were in Rachel's shoes, I would say escort away. Like I'm willing to cut this short. I'm willing to go home. I'm willing to be, you know, basically like frog marched out of this hotel in an embarrassing way, but I'm not putting my company's money on the line. Like that is a crime in and of itself that she never seemingly never gets charged for. But yeah, I mean, she's in a terrible situation. I sympathize for her, at least at this point in the show. But yeah, I, I do not think she made the right call by giving them her credit card. Do you want to weigh in here? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Settle this dispute. Right. So the company credit card changes things. And she had a personal card that she also was going to use. And there was some back and forth there. Never put a company credit card down on something that's not company. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can get fired for buying diapers with your company credit card on accident instead of your regular credit card. I'm like, I think that's actually a news story that that happened. Um, so to me, that's number one. She did have a personal card that she originally put down and then she had to switch it out to pay and left that one. I think part of, I've thought about this question and this part of the show so much because you now have like financial pressure, like, okay, we just have to get this done and my friend will pay for it because she's been, she's come through every single time. And any of us who've lent money to family or friends always want to believe they're going to pay you back. And there is a saying like, don't lend money to friends or family without some sort of contract interest rate and like you're an actual bank, right? Because you are not getting it back. It's a gift. (laughs) It is always a gift. And that's what you have to see it as when you are helping someone out. When it comes to a $60,000 hotel bill, that is a huge gift to make that decision to like give someone. And so- I don't know what I would have done in that situation because I wouldn't be under that social pressure, the adrenaline that's changing like your brain chemistry to make the right decision. I also might have been like, okay, yeah, let's just put this on here. But when she says it's just to hold, right? Like how naive are you? This is now the credit card on file for all the charges. So I'm not sure what you think is happening here, but you are now assuming responsibility for what's going on. And the fact that they didn't end the trip at that time, that to me is really um, telling about how these people aren't really friends, right? Like you didn't end the trip. You didn't figure things out together. You went on like another $2,000 tea tasting, which your friend doesn't have money for. And now you've also put your credit card down for that. So to me, you're getting into this financial mess because like you said, you're not willing to face these really difficult emotions around finances, which is how a lot of us get into trouble with finances. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what I do. I don't know what Rachel should have done. I just know that, goodness gracious, this happens every day in smaller amounts. Yeah. Well, I think the lesson that we can take away here for like normal people who don't end up in Morocco with $60,000 hotel bills on the line, but the lesson for normal people like us is just be really, really cautious when you are lending money to anyone for any reason and recognize that if you are like at a restaurant with someone and they say, oops, I forgot my wallet, if you pay for the meal, you are that is a loan that you are making to them and you could very well not get it back. So I think you have to be prepared for the consequence of never getting that money back. And as you said, never consider a uh, quote-unquote loan to a friend or family member, an actual loan. Think of it as a gift. Expect not to get it back. And if you do, you can be pleasantly surprised. But 
that money is gone for you. Like it's just gone. So yeah, I think the mistake that Rachel made was just being far too gullible and not being transparent about the fact that she couldn't pay and that this was like a serious problem for her. There needed to be a lot more transparency and honesty going on. Obviously, Anna was like criminally convicted for her overall lack of honesty. But just in general, I think everyone needed to be way more upfront and accepting of the consequences of what they had already. I mean, it was water under the bridge. They'd already done it. The money was spent. Like we're in the situation. We just need to talk openly about how to get out of it with a minimal amount of loss. Yeah. Rachel is presented as a complex character in the, in the show. Like should she deserve sympathy or not? It's kind of a question that her friends are struggling with that the audience that the jury is struggling with. Um, I, I think, I think all of us are, are kind of in that boat. Like, I don't, I don't know what the right thing for her to do was, but I think you make a great point. As soon as things go down and they don't have enough money, the question should be, all right, how can we, how can we cut our losses? How can we, how can we stop this problem from getting worse? Because would her credit, would she really have had a credit card with a $60,000 limit if she's kind of reliant on her friend, Anna for, for paying for all these expenses? It seems kind of unlikely I, I, that's why she had to use the business card, I'm sure. Whew, just a terrible, terrible situation. Uh, no question about that. Never want to be trapped in a foreign country with a friend who's saying racist things to the hotel owners and getting you $60,000 into debt. Just battle around. I think something to think about that too is that Anna's scam didn't work. But it didn't work like not in the United States, it didn't work in a foreign country where she didn't understand the local laws and customs. And so you guys have both brought that up where this is a foreign country. And that's something to always know when you're traveling. Like you said, you should probably understand a little bit about the laws, maybe learn a couple of words in the, like, in the language so that you understand what's going on around you because you can get into trouble fast wherever you are. I used to live in Thailand and this is the case. You'd see like expats and people get into trouble because they didn't understand the law. They didn't understand, you know, what they were spending at clubs and you get into tricky situations quickly. Yeah, that's a really good point. Traveling should be done carefully and thoughtfully and with some forethought as well. So one of the themes we've been kind of dancing around here is the fact that Anna was in such a hurry to be successful at a really young age without really putting in the work. And our next clip is really just focusing on a lot of young people who had that same kind of mentality. It was magical. That party was next level balling. Okay, has everyone met my friend Naf? She's a filmmaker. Hey, Naf. All these rich suits, models, some famous singer. Oh, and Marsh Grelly, the farmer bro who raised all the prices of those AIDS drugs and ended up in prison, he was there. I told him to chill. <laughs> Guys like me don't do time. Oh, let's oh. go. Oh my God. <laughs> hey, another bottle? Uh, the 1975 dump. And you know what they did when the bill came? They called it credit card roulette. The winner's Martin. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> she rigged that game, right? That literally went through my head as well. I was like, <laughs> I don't remember. Did she like put her card in and then like stick it under her palm? She was but I don't think she's like that. Like she's not openly, she's lavish. So she wouldn't like hide a card, but she might choose the other one. On yeah. Like, yeah. I'm going to run. Let me be the operator mm-hmm. of this game. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely took control of it, which I'm guessing was intentional. I guess should, in case it's not clear, by credit card roulette, we just mean everyone's throwing their credit cards in the middle of the table and then randomly one is selected. To pay the full bill. Mm-hmm. Which, P.S., was $36,000, I believe. Yeah, that's totally normal. For a dinner. <laughs> uh, yeah. So everyone at this table is super, super young. And some of the people at the table seem to have earned their success. Like I think she mentions one of the Culkins, call back to Anna Klumsky and my girl, either Macaulay Culkin or uh, what's his name? Karen? Karen? Yeah. 
Karen Culkin. One of them was at the table with her. And I assume like they have, whichever of the Culkins it was, have actually earned their success. Like they've had successful TV and movie careers. But I don't know, like a lot of the people at that table, certainly Anna, um, are awfully young. And I have the impression that maybe a lot of them had like inherited some wealth as Anna pretended to, or were otherwise maybe just kind of glomming on to this group of really wealthy people when they couldn't actually afford to put their credit card on the table for the game of roulette. So all of this, I think, just calls into question this obsession with, quote-unquote, making it at a really, really young age. So my question is, what's the rush? What do you guys think about that? Have you guys felt the rush when you were younger to make it, whatever that meant for you? (laughs) That's a great question. So Robert and I became obsessed with the idea of financial independence and maybe like 2014, I'm going to say. That seems roughly right. And at that point, I did have that feeling of wanting to fast forward a little bit to the point where we had accumulated, you know, this magic sum of money that we had in our heads. And then as you get closer to it, you realize, you know, maybe maybe it's not actually as life-changing and magical as I thought. Maybe I should just focus on living the life that I want to live and not so much about the dollar signs. But I, I have felt the rush in that sense. I'm not sure I've ever felt the desire to make it. Right. I, I don't, I've never, I don't know what that really means for me. Um, I, there's certainly been times like things at work or, or you know, I want to advance in my career or something like that. And when there's an opportunity, I, I want to be given the chance to take on more or progress. And, you know, oftentimes I maybe wasn't ready and other people got those opportunities. And maybe that's the closest thing for me. But I, I get the desire to want to try to reach your goals as quickly as you can. That seems pretty normal pretty healthy. That's fair. What about you? Have you felt that rush? So I'm just going to hide over here in a corner because yes, I like, there is something that's been inside of me since I was quite young. Like a lot of people don't know this, that has this desire to be successful and um, make it. I don't Mm -hmm. know what that word means exactly, but, and I feel like I'm like cutting there. Um, but something in me that just has this drive to do more, be more, and like, I don't know, like become more in this world than what I see most people do. And so I sometimes identify with these like uber hustlers when they're young who maybe earned their fame and fortune and some of them haven't. There is something in me that I tef- like definitely recognize in Anna that I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see this. And something that was quite humbling for me at one point in my life was seeing like the age that most people became millionaires. To me, that's not actually a definition of success necessarily, but it's just one of the ways that we do, we can and do define success in our, in our culture. And I was like, oh, it's like 35, 40, 45. Most people don't become millionaires in your 20, Mm -hmm. like in your 20s. And your 20s is all about failure, not success. So taking that time to go outside your comfort zone when it comes to travel or um, starting businesses. I started like five businesses in my 20s. Um, Clearly none of them were successful. (laughs) (laughs) They were in my own mind of like, you know, I learned a lot. Um, but that like drive I have had since I can't, like, I can't tell you when it started because it's always been there. And I wonder someone like Anna who didn't come from much and who had to like, who was a, a first gen like immigration in Germany from Russia, couldn't understand the language, had to kind of make her own way in this world. I wonder if that plays into that like hustle and that drive for success because she didn't like it wasn't a maybe an option for her. And that's how I feel like we were very poor. I was from the United States. I came to Canada. I was always now cast with my friends. They would make fun of me. And there is something in me that's always wanted to prove all those people wrong. And that like, I'm going to go be something 
So I totally get it. You know, I think um, the way that you phrase that to prove people wrong, I identify with that really strongly because when I went to law school, I cannot tell you how many times people said to me, but you're too sweet to be a lawyer. So many fucking times. <laughs> and I just got so angry when I heard it. And I was like, well, watch, just watch. I want to do it. Yeah, I definitely identify with that crowd of people who are young and hungry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- I think that hunger can be a really good thing as long as it's directed at a healthy pursuit. And an honest pursuit. I mean, you can do whatever you want. There's terrible people in this world because, and they'll never be good. But like, that's my thing. Like community building is something that is like so strong. And that's part of that thing of like that drive to be a leader in my community. Mm -hmm. That's created this incredible community of people who get together and go on retreats together and hang out. But that comes from that drive that like, I don't talk about much. (laughs) I think that kind of drive is very positive. And I, I don't think I have it quite to your degree, but I have it to some degree. And I think it's really healthy, like to strive to be better at something and create something that you feel really excited about and good about. Those are all really positive things. We're on a podcast because of that. Good job, both of you. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? Anything to add? I was going to say, so Carl and I, we like to go backpacking and hiking. And there's kind of a saying there that people carry their fears, right? There's there's some minimal amount of gear that you have to carry. And then almost everybody has some additional items that they that they bring along with them. And often, if you look at sort of the things that people carry that are above and beyond what's minimally necessary, for Carla, it's more layers of clothing because she's afraid she's going to be cold. I mean, I do get really cold. For me, it's more water than I need to carry knowing how close the next water source is because I'm just afraid something's going to happen. But I, I, I think what you're saying about Anna really fits that same story. Like she's had some fears in her life. She's had some tough situations that she's gone through and she is basically doing the same kind of thing. She's got this defensive approach and rules her decisions with that being a common theme. Yeah, that's a good takeaway. We carry our fears. Yeah, I really like that. So our final clip is also about fears. We are listening to Anna Klumski, who's playing the reporter, talking about diving into the psychology of what's actually going on in Anna Sorkin's mind. You know, I read this and I think she must have been terrified. She had this pot of money she's spending living in this hotel and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and she was waiting for the funding to come through for ADF she had to believe that it was really going to happen that she was really going to get the money or why keep spending I think she was moving on faith I don't know if this was totally a scam I think she believed what do you think do you think she really did believe she had a vision and she was doing everything to make that vision happen. Yeah, I completely agree. I think she had her complete whole heart into this thing and just could not imagine it failing. Her ADF ambitions were real. And I don't think she was planning on getting a bunch of money to go steal it. I think she was going to get a bunch of money and go set up everything that she said she wanted to do. She just didn't have the credit worthiness that she was telling everyone she did. And no one would seriously give her that amount of money. <laughs> to start something that is that's such a elusive thing like a club um, w- without more of her own capital to back it up. So I, I yes, she was lying and stealing and she was check kiting and doing all kinds of crazy things to make ends meet. But in the end, I think she she was really going to do it, and she also probably just believed that it was okay that the, the ends were going to justify the means. Or I don't know. I think it's. An important lesson to be careful what you believe in, because she she had so much faith, ultimately just in her own people skills, which were obviously not insignificant at all. But like she didn't have anything to really back up her faith in the fact that this money was going to come through. It was ultimately all built on a lie, right? So I think she, again, should have taken it more slowly than she did, tried to actually build up some capital 
so that she could kind of get the ball rolling by working a normal job. And yeah, she just was in too much of a hurry and had belief in something that was ultimately built on a foundation of paper. So I think the other thing that's interesting about this clip is this idea that she must have been terrified watching her money dwindle down and dwindle down. And I can only imagine the sheer horror that I would have felt in any shoes if you were spending at this insane level and you know you only have this pretty small pot and the, sh- the show it's represented as being about $200,000. I think in real life it was actually about a hundred, but either way, she's got one or $200,000, which does not go very far when you are like shopping at, you know, the highest end fashion boutiques every day and going out to $36,000 dinners. Staying in like the nicest hotel rooms that you can find for mm-hmm. forever, basically. Yeah. And tipping at a hundred bucks a pop, like just whenever you feel like it, when someone smiles at you. So she was just going through money like water. And I just can imagine how I would have felt if I had been in that situation. Does that, how do you think you would have felt if you were going through money and you have this finite amount available to you? No offense to Anna, but I don't think she's a normal human in her brain. Um, so my answer is very different, like in the sense that when this, this, a reporter is talking about how terrified this girl must have been. I don't see that in her. She has issues. And I don't know if terror or those types of feelings are part of that. Again, not a psychologist. I would, at some point, I would probably have stopped, um, cut my losses and been like, cool, I'm going to go work my way up from Burger King on and figure this out, right? I don't know if I could even get to the point where I'd be terrified because I don't know if I would get there. And so again, I just think that there must be a bit different wiring for her to have gone this far off this many lives, lies, screwing these many people over and still waking up every single day doing it again. Yeah, I don't know what she thought was going to happen as her money started to run out. Like, how did she think she was going to get over it? She needed a bridge to carry her until her loans would actually fund. Mm -hmm. And once she got down to like 10% of the money she started with, or, you know, 5% of the money she started with, she could have gone and gotten a reasonable apartment somewhere for, for months just to tie, tie herself over and, and really pull back if she was actually afraid. I, I think you're right. She just wasn't facing it, was ignoring it and just, She'd gotten that far. Why couldn't she keep going? So one other topic that I think is interesting here, this idea that you have like a fixed amount of money and you are spending it down. In the financial independence community, that's what people work towards being able to do is saving up X amount of dollars. And of course, we hope that it's not finite because we invest it wisely into index funds or real estate or whatever. And you know, you hope that you will live off of the interest slash growth slash rent, whatever your model is. But I think there is a little bit of that mentality to financial independence, which is like you're not working anymore. You're living off of, you know, a a fixed sum of money that you've worked to accumulate. I think that's something that a lot of people in the FI community struggle with is letting go of that constant income and just living off a fixed amount of money. So what are your thoughts on that? Does that strike you as something that people maybe are more afraid of than they should be? Should you be terrified if you have a fixed sum of money, even if it should be enough? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's people are so fearful that eventually that money will run out. I don't know if you guys follow Ramit Sethi. I mean, I know who he is, but I haven't read his stuff. So he has this idea that you should spend lavishly on what you love and cut mercilessly on what you don't. And I think in the FI community, when you brought that up, you know, in, in relation to Robert's comment, wow, you are so right. All of us in the FI community are working towards having some sort of fixed amount that we pull money from. And we work most of our lives being frugal to get there. And then we forget how to spend money once we're there. And this is, I go on like speaking tours around the US to like little campfires and other things. And this is what I talk about is that 
you have to live your life now so that you understand like, okay, what is a good year? Because maybe for me, a good year is traveling multiple times out of the country, more than likely spending three to four months not in the United States or in North America going and doing something cool. And in difficult years, bad years, I could cut that back, right? So my spending can be up and down when I only have a fixed bucket based on where that bucket is, where the market is and what's going on. And the FI community is so focused on accumulation of funds that we forget how to spend in that time. So we have these closed fists where no little grains of sand can come down and actually like enjoy things. So I'm kind of taking what you're saying, but also bringing my own like uh, venting to this where you have this bucket, but then you don't even want to spend it when you actually have accumulated that time and you get the one year syndrome You never really enjoyed your life for the 15 years you went to do it. And I talked to so many people who are FI and this is their biggest problem is spending. And I think that's sad. Yeah. You need to be more like Anna. (laughs) (laughs) That, um, that hits a little close to home for the two of us. I think we are, it's just so difficult for us to spend money on things, even if we know they'll be, really fun and fulfilling. I think it's really hard for us to to let go of those purse strings a little bit because we yeah, you spend so much time working and saving and striving and ultimately it's hard to to flip the switch a little bit and realize we got to a really good place we can enjoy life a little bit more. I think the reality is you shouldn't be trying to flip a switch, right? You should have a you know, a smooth adjustment, right? You should gradually change what's going to happen over time. And if, if you're trying to be really conservative with your spending and squirrel a lot away, you should, I don't know, you should move off of that when you've reached your goal or as you're approaching your goal and not just have some sort of like stair step function where you like, oh, now I have enough money to go do what I want to do. Time to go live it up. You can't really adjust like that very effectively. I no. Don't, I don't think. And do we see so many people who can't. And again, I find that a bit sad to watch yeah. because I, I have an amazing life. And for most of it, I made less than $20,000 a year. And so it doesn't like, it doesn't even have to cost a lot of money. It's a muscle. And if you've been constantly doing the delayed gratification muscle and working that one up, then you don't know how to do the other muscles, which is to spend a little bit, to be excited about something and to take a little bit of that time and money that you've put away and you've worked hard for and do something cool. Yeah. I think it, there is a perfect balance somewhere between like a, you only live once, YOLO, spend it up like crazy every single day kind of lifestyle. And, but what if something bad happens, you know, 10 years from now and I need every dollar that I've ever earned in my life at that point and I can't spend anything in the meantime because what if that happens? Somewhere there in the middle, there is a very happy balance to life. And I think it takes a lot of a lot of time and a lot of intentional effort to get to that happy medium. I'm not sure that we have found it yet, but what is life if not a challenge, right? You got to keep striving for the things you want. Yeah. It'll get boring if you're not, you know, constantly trying to improve. And when we look at Anna, she doesn't change her lifestyle based on that pot of money. It's no, the same every single night, every single day, every single hotel. Whereas the FI community might be the same every single night, every single day to not spend that money. And so like you're saying, that happy medium is going with the flow and and kind of seeing where life will take you. Knowing that if you were capable of doing this for the first 15 years of your life, you can go back to work and do something if you really needed to. Yeah, that's true. So as we wrap this up, Amberly, do you want to give a shout out to places where people can find you and all that jazz? Yeah. Uh, so amberlygrant.com. Feel free to reach out to me there, especially if you want to be a part of Fin Talks. That's our Tuesday talk at 530 Mountain Time every single week. And uh, there's like a form there you can put your email address in. Um, also, Instagram is where I do most of my content creation and you get to see me uh, dressed modestly, sometimes not, uh, doing videos on financial content and education. That's at Amberly Grant on Instagram. And then um, 
Facebook as Amberly Grant Finance, uh, if you're a big frequenter of Facebook. And then my YouTube channel is going to be coming out. That's exciting. Um, yeah, I started a mastermind group to be able to actually launch it because it's been a fear of mine for like two years. Um, and so I am going to be launching it April-ish because um, I'm spending all of March creating some videos. So that will just be Amberly Grant on YouTube. Congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, guys. Well, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. And a big thanks to Amberly for stopping by to chat about a pretty cool TV show with us. Thank you, guys. You have some great insight. And I really enjoyed this. All right. Amberly, thanks so much again for stopping by. And thanks to everybody else for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>